Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at tprdfw.com. Or in our series on the 150 chapters, and uh, tonight is our session on Leviticus 26. And as we've been doing, we've been going through uh, the various uh, chapters in the Bible that are about the end times, or at least mostly about, or at least half about uh, the end times. And uh, this passage in Leviticus uh, chapter 26, um, I feel pretty confident that for the most part, uh, when it was given and how it was commonly interpreted throughout the ages, was not thinking primarily about the end times. But as we're able to line it up with the end time uh, uh, storyline, as we know the drama at the end of the age, and as we now have an interesting perspective at year 2024 that we couldn't have had when these promises were given uh, in the timing of Moses and, uh, and the Israelites coming out of Egypt, and even throughout all of human history, we now have a point of reflection where we can look back and we can see very clearly that these promises that were given back uh, from the mouth of Moses by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit um, were actually very much about the end time drama. So it's an interesting thing when you can add a little bit of time uh, to be able to help with some perspective because the fullness of these passages hasn't happened yet. Now, I will say that bits and pieces of all of what we're about to read have occurred. Uh, We've got a couple of even significant dates where some substantial parts of these promises occurred, but not the fullness. A couple of those partial fulfillments that you can look at is in 586 BC uh, when Babylon came and, uh, you know, sacked uh, Jerusalem and carted off a, a large chunk of the population into exile. Uh, You could look at a lot of what was written here in Leviticus chapter 26 and see much of that, but not all, much of that uh, in 586 BC. You could also see some pieces of it in 70 AD when uh, the Israel, or rather when Jerusalem was destroyed um, by Rome and uh, what occurred there in 70 AD, which was just a horrible time uh, for Israel. Once again, you can see some pieces, but not all. Now, the reason that that's really important is because God doesn't lose his way and accidentally prophesy extra details that aren't real. He doesn't say something and then go, oh, you know what? I probably overstated that. I said two or three or 10 phrases extra that aren't real, that I didn't really mean, that wouldn't really happen. That's not the case at all. Instead, we're to look at God who never says anything without absolute certainty. And then we go, well, if this circumstance didn't meet 100% of the details about that prophecy, then that prophecy is still future. And while we can take great um, strength from the fact that partial pieces of that were were, uh, uh, realized or were fulfilled, it, it was in no way completed. And that's a, that's a very important um, <coughs> interpretive key related to Bible prophecy. If all of it wasn't fulfilled, then it is still future. And uh, that's just a really important uh, detail. And, and really, you just look at it and go, the ways of the Lord, it's not like he has to do this, but he often does things in patterns. 
Uh, one of the ways uh, that we each learn how to hear the voice of the Lord is who speaks a little bit different to you and a little bit different to you and a little bit different to you. And you have to kind of learn what are some of the commonalities that the Lord uses in my life to speak to me. Because that's the Lord is a God of patterns. It's not that he's bound to them, but he uses them often. Uh, he's the one that came up with seasons of the year, and you can count on it. It's going to be that season again about the same time next year and about the next, uh, you know, the next uh, uh, quarter of, you know, of the year. The Lord is into patterns. He does that. And so it's not surprising then that he would write prophecies, lots of them, and that there would be patterns, there would be traces, there would be partial fulfillments of those ideas while still awaiting the big one. Okay, and so uh, anyway, so that's what we're going to be looking at uh, uh, tonight, give you just a little bit of frame of reference there. Okay, now what we're going to do is we're going to break up Leviticus 26 into uh, three categories, really just two and then uh, a, a couple of verses at the end, uh, but two main categories, and the first is millennial promises. Okay, this is a significant uh, prophetic, we gain, we gain significant prophetic information about what the millennium will look like. So what's the millennium? That's the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. It's the time where so many of the Bible promises come to be fulfilled because it's the first time that Jesus has been on earth in operation as the leader of the planet. He never did that before. When he came the first time, the whole planet didn't even know he was here. But when he comes the second time, he will be operating as king of kings and lord of lords on earth. He will be leading the earth. And it says for a thousand years, things are going to look a certain way. And then after that, they're actually going to get even better. But things do transition after that thousand years. So millennium just means thousand years. So if you ever hear that term, the millennium, we're talking about the thousand year reign of Jesus. Well, during Jesus's thousand years, your reign, there are going to be so many things that are made right. There's going to be so much that has been off, that has been out of bounds, that is going to be put right. It is going to be the most glorious time in human history, only to be surpassed by what comes after that. It's going to be an incredible, incredible season. And one of the things that is going to be uh, greatest in God's heart, greatest in Jesus's heart, one of the things on that list is Israel will be in full obedience. That the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, <coughs> they will be walking with their God. They will be fulfilling all the purposes and promises that we find scattered uh, throughout the Old Testament. This passage that we're going to be looking at today in uh, Leviticus chapter 26, it's one and, and maybe uh, the first, the, the major first, of many Old Testament passages describing blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. It's interesting, the Lord typically pairs those two things. He'll typically say, listen, Israel, if you'll walk with me, I have these incredible blessings for you. But if you'll choose not to walk with me, I'm going to deal strongly with you as well. And it's all negatives. It's, it's curses for disobedience. And so Leviticus 26, as far as chronologically... It would be the first of many as far as the big passages that deal with this subject. And, uh, of course, there's references elsewhere, but this is kind of like the first time we're looking at, you know, 50 verses or something all in a row, or, you know, even 30 verses all in a row, talking about blessings and curses. Okay, so with that as our backdrop, I'm now going to read 
uh, Leviticus 26, 3 through 12. And then we're going to break this down. Again, we're talking about the good stuff right now. This is, it, God starts off with the good stuff here in Leviticus um, uh, 26, and then he moves on to, but if you don't take me seriously, I'm really, really going to cause you problems. All right, so here we are, Leviticus 26, 3. If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its season, and the ground will yield its crops and the trees their fruit. Your threshing will continue until grape harvest, and the grape harvest will continue until planting, and you will eat all the food you want and live in safety in your land. I will grant peace in the land, and you will lie down, and no one will make you afraid. I will remove wild beasts from the land, and the sword will not pass through your country. I will look on you with favor, and I will make you fruitful and increase your numbers, and I will keep my covenant with you. You will still be eating last year's harvest when you will have to move it out to make room for the new. I will put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. All right, these are awesome, powerful, good things. Not just options, not just opportunities, but this is actually what the millennial kingdom will look like. We're now describing details of what things will look like on earth under Christ's leadership, okay? First of all, letter A, Israel will obey the Lord. That is going to happen. That is going to happen. We've got countless passages that tell us that. <coughs> this one doesn't exactly say it that way exactly, but it, it gives us a pretty good inclination. But we can lean on many other millennial passages <coughs> that make it clear that Israel will, in fact, receive their Messiah, <clears throat> will obey, will follow the decrees and the statutes and the commands of the Lord, and will fully embrace this covenant that's mentioned here a couple times, this covenant that God has uh, made with Israel. Israel will obey the Lord. Again, I gave you the, the, verse, the first verse there. If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, they will. Israel will. This is really good news because we're in an hour right now where that's not happening. Right now, is, most of Israel is secular and isn't even thinking about God at all. And then there's a remnant of Jews that are messianic, that believe in Jesus, that love Jesus. And then you've got a group that's, uh, I'm not exactly sure the total number, uh, but you've got a group of the Hasidic Jews that are following the ways as best as they understand from the Old Testament, but they have not received Jesus, of which the entire Old Testament was pointing to. And so they are not in compliance with the Lord's purposes. And there is a time coming where all the Jews are going to follow his decrees and be careful to obey his commands. It's going to be an awesome and sweet time, and that will happen under the leadership of Jesus. And Jesus will make it all make so much sense. He'll make it so clear. When we're no longer talking about a group of Jews that are going, well, we believe in Jehovah, but we don't believe in Jesus. When Jesus is on earth explaining Jehovah and explaining Jesus and explaining everything with perfect clarity, the Jews will turn to Jesus. They will fully embrace uh, Jehovah. 
They will have the power by the Holy Spirit through Christ to follow the purposes of God and to keep the commandments of the Lord. It's going to be a beautiful time. That's really, from a, from a Jewish perspective, that's one of the primary things that is going to define millennial life. The thousand-year reign of Jesus, if you're a, a Jew in, in the, uh, in the uh, thousand years, that's going to be one of the big pieces is the Jewish people are going to be following the Lord. It's going to be beautiful, and it's going to be unprecedented from any time in history. Well, what else? The land will be fruitful. This is one of the promises. When Israel obeys the commands of the Lord, he promises to faithfully send them rain and for their land to be fruitful. Uh, I'll send you rain in its season. The ground will yield its crops, the trees, their fruit. What a, uh, a beautiful thing when things are in proper order and God is sending the rain and not just sending the rain, but he's blessing uh, the vegetation so that it all bears the fruit that it's supposed to. But it's more than that. It says this, uh, Leviticus 26.5 and then 26.10, he says, it's not just that your land will bear fruit, there's going to be supernatural fruitfulness. This is another one of those uh, uh, concepts that we find in several passages related to the millennial kingdom. It says here in Leviticus 26.5 and 10, your threshing <coughs> will continue until grape harvest. And the grape harvest will continue until planting. And you will eat all the food you want. You'll still be eating last year's harvest when you'll have to move it out to make room for the new. This is a description of a, a supernatural blessing on the fruitfulness of the land. Uh, that's a really exciting millennial promise. And, and, and I, I mean, there's other places that describe this, but we want to be thinking not only of the number of crops, but even the size of the crops. I mean, this is going to be a, this is going to be like God's hand is on the crops as opposed to just the natural order of things. There'll be peace in the land. This will be the first time that there's guaranteed sustained peace in the land. And this will be much needed after the great tribulation. When we read Leviticus uh, 26 in this passage, we want to be thinking about what will have just been the reality. And we could even look at what is the reality right now. There is not peace in Israel. And even in the moments where there's been peace, you don't need an iron dome if you're not thinking we're probably going to deal with unpeace pretty soon. The whole thought process is this hour of human history and until this happens, there is not going to be peace in Israel <coughs> in any sort of sustainable, believable way. But God says, you will live in safety in your land. I will grant peace in your land. You got to love it when God is in charge of the war and not whoever it is that think they are, whatever parties. When God says, I will grant you peace because that's a, a guaranteed promise. And you will lie down and no one will make you afraid. Let's just think about the the uh, difference in circumstance, all of the activity of the Great Tribulation is revolving around the Antichrist who will be operating with the greatest measure of aggression. I mean, every vile thing in hell will be driving him against Jews. That's the end time drama, is the Antichrist and a whole system that will be designed that's causing Jewish people to very much be afraid. So this verse will have way more meaning in just a minute. I mean, it matters now, but I'm thinking in the middle of the Great Tribulation, 
<clears throat> when every Jewish person on the planet is shaken in their boots because of the amount of aggression that is coming out of hell through the Antichrist, for them to be said, said to, the Lord will cause you to lie down and no one will make you afraid. That will be such a powerful promise. That will have such, uh, such power on the heart. Um, but we're not going to see that, again, in any sort of sustained way until Jesus comes. Okay? The Lord will remove wild beasts. An interesting phrase. Leviticus 26, verse 6. I will remove wild beasts from the land and the sword will not pass through your country. I think I gave you the verse a little bit later when we're looking at the negative stuff. Um, but uh, it's uh, Revelation chapter 6, verse 8 in the fourth seal in uh, the tribulation judgments. One of the judgments, seal 4, actually includes the Lord stirring up wild beasts to come against Israel. Not just Israel, the whole earth. Wild beasts. Not wild beasts kind of losing their mind a little bit. But God going, wild beast, I need you to lose your mind a lot. You and your friend and all your babies and all your enemies too. All you wild beasts, let's get you freaking out against humans. There is going to be such a plague. I mean, it's a, we need to be understanding. We're not talking about any measure of the natural order. We're talking about probably demonic activity happening on these wild beasts in a really significant way. Well, why does that matter? Well, because the earth... <laughs> is going to be filled with aggressive wild beasts, says Revelation chapter 6, verse 8, and other passages besides. You may not know this. This is a kind of an interesting point. But God promising to plague Israel and really earth with aggressive wild beasts is actually a significant thread in the end time scriptures. Uh, I mean, I, I want to say it's mentioned as many as maybe 20 times in end time passages, maybe even 25 times. That is a significant amount of information. God keeps coming back to it because he wants to make the statement it's not going to be normal animal activity. He says, I'm going to stir up wild beasts. It's actually one of the, the covenantal promises or curses. If Israel and really the world doesn't walk with God, God is going to release on Israel wild beasts, really intense. So here's God saying, I'll come in and remove them because they will have been plaguing you and you will really care about this when the time comes. I will remove wild beasts from the land. It says also, in the midst of this, uh, let's see, uh, Leviticus 26.9, bottom of page 2. I will look on you with favor and make you fruitful and increase your numbers and I will keep my covenant with you. Israel will be allowed to flourish in the land once again. Flourish and multiply in numbers. There's a lot of reasons why uh, <clears throat> that flourishing is going to take place. But it's the, Lord's, the one, it's the Lord that's driving the conversation and driving their fruitfulness. An added piece, just if you needed you know, a little uh, frame of reference, um, in Isaiah 65 verse 20, we're told that during the millennial kingdom, that a person that dies at 100 years old will be thought a mere child because the, uh, the, the aging is going to reverse Benjamin Button style. We're going to be going back like it was in the time of Noah and, and the you know, saints of old where they were living 
hundreds and hundreds of years to where a person that dies at 101 is like, oh man, they were just getting started. They were just such a, they're like such a kid. I mean, that's so tragic that they died at 101. That's such an odd idea to us, but that's where this is going. Well, if you're dying at 101 and that's thought to be a mere babe, then let's say you're living four, five, six hundred years. How many kids can you have in 600 years? And that's part of the story. There's going to be a multiplication. There's going to be less things killing people, more long age, and God's fruitfulness promised on them. They're going to flourish. The numbers of, of uh, those in the land are going to um, expand beyond anything we've ever seen before. It's going to be a great nation uh, with many uh, peoples and such underneath. All right. And then top of page three, this is... This is the point. You know, everybody gets a perspective. Uh, the Jews get a perspective. You know, we get a perspective in this hour. The angels have a perspective. Everybody's got one. Here's God's point of view. I want to dwell with man in a way that's safe that I won't kill them. I want to dwell with man. I created mankind... And I saved the nation Israel, I started the nation Israel, that I would be able to have fellowship and dwell. However, because of your sinful state and because of my holy state, we can't dwell together without me destroying you. But it's my desire, it's my earnest hope, and I will get my way to dwell with man without contention. This is in God's heart. This is the reason he made people. He didn't make mankind so that he could be God far away and mankind could be on the earth. He wants to dwell in the midst of mankind. It is his sincere desire. Here we see it in Leviticus 26. He says, and this, by the way, is nearly the exact quote. Uh, I mean, it's certainly the, the heart of it. It's partial quote. From Revelation chapter 21, 3 through 4. At the end of the millennial kingdom, after the thousand years, after Jesus has been making things right for a thousand years, it says, then the Father will come and dwell on earth, and he will make his home with mankind. Well, here it is. Promises for obedience. I will put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. <clears throat> of course, that will happen during the entire thousand years in the person of Christ. But the Father reserves his descending to dwell with man for after the thousand years. These are powerful things that are in the heart of God. Now, when you look at these uh, promises and you put a little bit of perspective, go, wow, these things haven't happened. <laughs> we have not seen this. I mean, maybe partial fulfillment. I mean, even the temple on earth would be a partial, 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 partial fulfillment of what we're looking at here where he says, I'll put my dwelling place among you. But I mean, it gets a lot bigger than that. I will walk among you. So there's, a, there's this beautiful picture of what we see related to the millennial promises uh, here in Leviticus chapter 26. <clears throat> well, that was the good news. Now it gets hard. And I just have to say, so many of the things we're about to read are very difficult to say. They are, they are very hard to say. 
and to talk about, to believe. Not, it's hard to believe the Bible. It's, these things are so painful, and they are aimed at the Jewish people. And the spillover will touch everybody else as well. But there are painful, painful things written here. And so I don't want to make light of that. I mean, as I was reading these things, I was like, oh, God, you, you've got to turn the hearts of Jews to you because these promises for disobedience are so incredibly painful and they are pictures of the end-time judgments that we read about in the book of Revelation and elsewhere. So I'm going to read now a pretty good stint here. This is Leviticus chapter 26. I'm going to read 14 through 39. But if you'll not listen to me and carry out these commands, and if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out my commands and so violate my covenant, then this is what I will do. Uh, Then I will do this to you, rather. I will do this to you. I will bring on you sudden terror, wasting diseases, and fever that will destroy your sight and sap your strength. You will plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you. And you will flee even though no one is pursuing you. Notice how these are all the exact opposite things we just read about if they're, if they're in obedience. If after all this you'll not listen to me, I will punish you for your sins seven times over. I'll break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like iron and the ground beneath you like bronze. <coughs> your strength will be spent in vain because your soil will not yield its crops nor will the trees of your land yield their fruit. If you remain hostile toward me and refuse to listen to me, I will multiply your afflictions seven times over as your sins deserve. I will send wild animals against you, and they will rob you of your children, destroy your cattle, and make you so few in number that your roads will be deserted. If in spite of these things, you do not accept my correction, but continue to be hostile towards me, I myself will be hostile towards you and will afflict you with your sins seven times over. And I will bring the sword on you to avenge the breaking of the covenant. When you withdraw to your cities, I will send a plague among you and you will be given into the hands of your enemy. When I cut off your supply of bread, 10 women will be able to bake your bread in one oven and they will dole out the bread by weight. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied. If in spite of this, you do not listen to me, but continue to be hostile towards me, then, my ang- then in my anger, I will be hostile towards you and I myself will punish you for your sins seven times over. You will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and pile your dead bodies on the lifeless forms of your idols, and I will abhor you. I will turn your city, 
cities into ruins and lay waste your sanctuaries. I will take no delight in the pleasing aroma of your offerings. I myself will lay waste the land so that your enemies who live there will be appalled. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste and your cities will lie in ruins. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbath years all the time that it lies desolate and you are in the country of your enemies. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. All the time that it lies desolate, the land will have the rest it did not have during the Sabbaths you lived in it. As for those of you who are left, I will make their hearts so fearful in the lands of their enemies that, surround, uh, that the sound of a wind-blown leaf will put them to flight. They will run as though fleeing from the sword, and they will fall, even though no one is pursuing them. They will stumble over one another as though fleeing from the sword, even though no one is pursuing them. So you will not be able to stand before your enemies. You will perish among the nations. The land of your, enemy, uh, the land of your enemies will devour you. Those of you who are left will waste away in the lands of their enemies because of their sins, also because of their ancestors' sins. They will waste away. Now, I just want to point this out here. Part A talks about the sevenfold punishment for sin. It's mentioned directly four times and is kind of introduced, uh, you know, in this first one there in Leviticus 16, 14 through uh, 16. If you do not listen to me, carry out these commands. If you reject my decrees and my laws, I'm free to carry out my commands so that my, you violate my covenant. I will do this to you. And then he goes in and lists all the things that he's going to do. So this is the starting point. But then four times after that, four times, says, I'm going to release on you a sevenfold fulfillment of your sins. So whatever in God's economy, as God assesses the sins of Israel, he says, I'm going to, whatever that looks like, however he could calculate that or put it in a bowl, he says, I'm going to multiply that times seven, and that's what I'm going to give you in judgment. That is so intense, and he says it over and over. And he keeps saying the statement. This is an important statement. He keeps saying the statement along the lines, if you don't pay attention to what I just did, if you don't equate it back to Leviticus 26, when you experience a Leviticus 26 judgment, if you don't pay attention and you don't repent and you don't turn to me, I'm going to turn up the fire. And I'm going to release greater judgments than even what you just experienced. <coughs> well, we know from the end time storyline, that's what's going to happen in the last days. Those judgments are going to intensify. <clears throat> Israel is not going to turn until the very end. And these, these judgments are going to intensify and it's going to get really, really messy. And as we read the book of Revelation, and not only, remember, if you haven't heard me say this before, there's very little new information in the book of Revelation. There is some new information. But it's mostly just re-quoting Old Testament passages and lining them up and helping us to understand the storyline. Okay? There is some new information, but not a lot. 
Mostly it's quoting Old Testament prophecies that are about the end times. We just hadn't, the, didn't have the lens for it. And John got to see it all. And he paints the picture. Well, when we see that whole picture of what's occurring in the end times storyline, you see all of these things that are going to happen. It's really intense. God is after a repentant Israel. He's not trying to get Israel. He's trying to get Israel's heart. The objective of the end time drama is to end the storyline to get Israel back. To get Jews on planet earth, specifically Jews in the land, not only. To get Jews on planet earth to see God. To turn to him and to receive his Messiah. And to walk in his ways and to walk humbly with him. This is what he desperately wants. It's been the desire of all of history. He's made his goal clear here in Leviticus. And in the end times, everything he's going to do is going to be in an effort to get Israel to turn to him. Somebody needs to be in the land of Israel. <clears throat> it's one of the reasons we need forerunners. We need them everywhere. We need them in Israel. Somebody needs to be walking around with Leviticus 26 open from the Torah and explaining when these things start to happen, and they will, explaining, this is Leviticus 26 judgments. We need to turn or else here's what's coming next. And that's the power of the prophetic scriptures. And there will be some. It's not that there's going to be zero Jews turning to Jesus through the end time drama. There will be. It's just not going to be the majority. And the, that majority is going to turn at the very end when Jesus shows up, and it's really clear that he's the Messiah, and then they're going to go, you're the Messiah, we receive you, come into Jerusalem. All right, well, let's look at some of these details. I'm not going to go into all the detail about all of them, but uh, promises of wasting diseases. This is supposed to get their attention. When God brings on sudden terror and wasting disease that will destroy them, that's supposed to cause Jews to go, wait a minute, this is Leviticus 26 stuff. Next one, the promise of enemies ruling over them. This is going to get really hard. I mean, at this point, this is going to be a really, really tough thing. When Jews right now that are fully trusting in their government and in their military uh, strength. Right now, it's, it's really hard. It's, it's a setup. That right now, Israel's military is so strong, Israel's defense is so strong, God says, I don't want you trusting in chariots. I don't want you trusting in your military capacities. I want you trusting in me. It is going to be so hard for Jews in the land to watch all of that strength pulled from them and then wind up in a place of complete desperation, and that's going to happen. See, this is the reason we really need to start getting a revelation of how are we going to stand with the Jews when all this goes down? Because if you're a, a, a Jew in Israel right now, you've got a lot of nationalism. You've got a lot of national pride for a lot of reasons. There's a lot of strength. God is going to take all that strength away because he doesn't want Jews relying on their chariots. That's always been the, the problem. He wants Jews relying on him. He is going to completely remove the strength of Israel. And they are going to wind up having their enemies ruling over them. I mean, if you were to tell Jews across the land of Israel right now, in some number of years, I don't know how many, in some number of years, 
your enemies are going to be ruling all over you. That would just be the most unthinkable thing for them. And it's going to happen. You'll plant in vain because your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you so that you'll be defeated by your enemies. Those you hate will rule over you and you will flee even though no one is pursuing you. Again, in the context of the Antichrist and the end time drama, I mean, Antichrist is going to cause it to be like impossible to be Jewish and stay in Israel. I mean, he is going to be really after them, really causing problems. It's going to be the most anti-Semitic, the most filled with aggression. It's going to be a really hard time. And so what's going to happen, <coughs> the Jews that are in Israel are going to scatter because they're not, Israel, specifically Jerusalem, is going to be home base for the Antichrist. It is going to be the absolute worst place to be if you're Jewish, which is why Jesus said, you better hope this thing doesn't happen in the winter or on the Sabbath because you're going to need to flee. He says, if you're in Jerusalem and you're a Jew, flee when the Antichrist sets himself up. Jesus is saying, flee. And part of the reason he's saying flee is because he knows what diabolical plans are in the heart of the Antichrist and the whole government that he's going to set up. He says, you will flee. He says, you'll flee even once there's nobody behind you. You're still going to be so freaked out because of the, the horrendous nature of what has been said, what, has been, what you've watched already with friends and family members. You will be so at flight in your heart that a rustling leaf will set you to flight. Oh my gosh, that's so intense. Also, the opposite of rain, the opposite of fruitful. He says, no, I'm going to make the... The sky above you, iron. That means no water. And I'm going to make the earth beneath you, bronze. That is not fertile ground. He says, I'm going to do the exact opposite of the blessings I promised you. I'm going to send you these incredible difficulties. And here's the promise of the wild animals. Such an incredible, crazy verse. Leviticus 26, 22. I, God says I. It's not like the animals just freak out. God says, I'm taking ownership over this. He says, I will send wild animals against you and they will rob you of your children. That is a really, really, I mean, when this one happens, like every Jewish person needs to be able to go, this is unthinkable. And then have a revelation of Leviticus 26 and go, it's God. It's God, he's after us. This is so intense. In the midst of all this, God makes a promise to decimate the population. I will destroy your cattle. I will make you so few in number. Your roads will be deserted. There's plenty of other verses that describe the same reality of such a reduced population. Promise to bring the sword. It's not just that the cattle are going to die. It's not just sword and war, but also plagues are promised in uh, Leviticus uh, 26 verse uh, 25. You can look at that uh, on your own. The promise of famine. This famine is going to be so intense. Waves of it. The duration will be really painful. The, the, the worst part about famine, as I understand it, isn't just that it happens. It's that it keeps happening because as it keeps happening, it causes uh, incremental problems. The, the, the problems are exponential because the seed that you were going to plant in order to get food for next year, you had to eat. So now there's not seed to plant for next year. Those kinds of problems that the famine goes on. And this is what it says. When I cut off your supply of bread, God says, when I do it, 10 women will be able to bake your bread in one oven and they'll dull 
out the bread by weight. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied. That is horrifying, but it's worse than that. This famine is worse than that. This is one of the most unthinkable things in the Bible. Because of this famine, it says, you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. See, the famine will be so hard that the young won't be able to survive. Their bodies need more nutrients than they're going to get. And they're going to pass. This is the lowest point for Israel. This is the lowest, lowest point. This is when the curses are at their fullness. And Israel's supposed to go like the prodigal son times a thousand. Like, how did I get here? How did I wind up here in this state, in this low, low place, and reach for God? That's what's supposed to happen. It's really tragic. He says he's going to bring judgment against their idols. Don't forget, leading up to uh, the period of the Great Tribulation, there's going to be a significant increase in idol worship. That's a subject that we'll cover in, in other passages. Uh, it's something that we looked at quite a bit when we were doing our study in Revelation. Um, but it's, it's a significant subject in the end times. And then if you just needed one major idol, the main one is going to be set up in Jerusalem. The Antichrist is going to set up a, an idol of himself, Revelation 13, 14 through 15. They gave you the verses there. But this is going to be an idol in Jerusalem, let alone all the other idols in the land, and let alone probably the replicated idols of the Antichrist in other places. Don't have time to go into that right now, but there's good reason that it, there's not going to just be the one in Jerusalem. Well, God says, I'm going to destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and I'm going to pile your dead bodies on the lifeless forms of your idols. Oh, my gosh. It's not just the people, it's cities and infrastructure and sanctuaries. God says, I will turn your cities into ruins and lay waste your sanctuaries. I myself will lay waste the land. <laughs> Even that your enemies that hate you will look at what I did and go, oh my gosh, that is appalling. The, the enemies of Israel will look at what God does to Israel and go, oh man, that's just awful. Wow, that's really intense. And then there's this promise that God is going to scatter Israel all across the earth. Again, this is one of those promises that has seen partial fulfillment, but not like what we're going to see. What's interesting right now is the number of Jews that are returning to the land, but the way the end time narrative goes is really challenging. And every person needs to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit because I have no doubt the Lord is calling people to Israel. I have no doubt. But what's going to happen is when Israel's got the most amount of people in it that are Jewish that has been the case for, you know, thousands of years, then the Antichrist aggression is going to cause the greatest scattering in a moment's notice, in one moment. Just think about how much easier it is for everybody in Jerusalem, that, or, and not just Jerusalem, but Israel, everybody in Israel that decides we need to get out right now, think about how much easier it is to get to the other side of the planet in 2024 or in 2054. You know, think about how much easier it is to get to the other side of the planet, to get all over, than it was even at 70 AD when Jerusalem was sacked in, uh, in the time of Rome. I mean, think about how much easier it is to scatter. They will scatter everywhere. That will be the church's greatest hour of responsibility. It will be the church's 
greatest responsibility in that hour to stand with Israel and to fight for Jewish souls, lives, feeding, hiding, taking care of, standing with, preaching the gospel, seeing them saved, praying for their healing, standing with them, taking them into their homes. The, the church across the earth will have the responsibility to receive Jews that have no desire for Jesus. Maybe they're secular. They're not even thinking of God. They're not even thinking of themselves as Jews except for the fact that somewhere their passport said Jewish and that meant there was a target on their head if they were in Israel. So they had to get out. Yesterday, they weren't even thinking of their national identity. And now it's all they're thinking about because they're told that there's, it's going to be trouble for them. They're going to be scattered across the earth in all the nations. And in all the nations, the church will be responsible to stand with Israel and to help Jews in their direst hour of need. This will bring about the, the provocation of to jealousy. That Jews will realize Christians are helping me because I'm a Jew. And they say their God is my God and their Savior is my Savior, and I wasn't thinking about any of that, but they sure are being nice to me, and I'm glad about that. And they're being nice to me day after day, after week, after month, after protection, after provision, after feeding, after taking care of the needs of the kids, again and again and again. And the Jews in the earth will be provoked to jealousy, and they will say, we want your God. And the Christians will say, actually, he's your God. And that will be the greatest moment of bringing together the one new man of Jew and Gentile. That will be the greatest expression when the church follows the Sermon on the Mount and actually goes low and serves the Jews in the most dire time of human history. He says, I will scatter you among the nations and draw my sword and pursue you. And they will be scattered all over. Let's, uh, you can read more here. I'm going to uh, skip to uh, number four. God will relent if Israel repents. This is a wrap-up. This is a really encouraging passage. We have to remember, God isn't doing these horrible things for horrible things' sake. He's doing it to get Jews to believe in him, to remind them of the covenant he made. You know, he takes these things really seriously. He said things back in Leviticus. We're talking about the time of Moses, thousands of years before Jesus. <laughs> We're talking about the time of Moses. And he spoke things that he is going to make good on. He said things. He, he meant it. And when he said it, he wasn't saying like, I think we've got such a wrong perspective, so many of us, that like the Bible has got rules and do's and don'ts in it. We've got God explaining he wants relationship with people and that there's a way that that looks and that it's got to be abiding in his purposes and his ways. His purpose all along was to have fellowship with men. He wants Israel to love him. He wants to be their God. And he's going to make good on these promises. So he just got done saying, I'll bless you if you follow me. And we see that in the millennial kingdom. He says, I'll curse you if you don't. We see that happening first. And that's the judgments in the end times and all of history. But nothing compares to what we're going to see in the fulfillment of Leviticus 26 in the end times. Nothing compares to that. And he says, but really, wrap up statement, if they will confess their sins, this is page 7, 
Uh, Leviticus 26.40. <laughs> if they will just confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors, their unfaithfulness and their hostility to me. Do you hear the heart of God? He's like, it, there's a wound. It, there's a real wound. Like, I am your God. I've done everything. If you will just confess that you were in the wrong and you'll own the wrong of your ancestors and your unfaithfulness and your hostility towards me, then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin. See, the end time judgments, I will repay you seven times for your sin. They've got, it's going to happen. It's, it's tragic. It's horrific. There needs to be so much mercy from the church on the Jews that are alive in that hour because God is going to be repaying their sin. It says, when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob, my covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Abraham, and look at this, and I will remember the land. Remember a couple weeks ago, we did a whole session about the dirt, about the land, and God's covenant, covenant uh, promises to the land. Here it is again. This is why we did a whole session about it, because it keeps showing up. God is like, I'm going to restore my covenant to the land, my covenant about the land, my land promise to these people, my promise of this land being prosperous, my promises of this land belonging to Israel, my promise of my presence resting in this land. There's just a lot related to it. And he says, listen, the time is coming. This is, this is how it's going to all play out. That I will remember my covenant with the land and I will make good on all of it. But first... They're going to go through tremendous difficulty. They're going to pay for their sins. And in the midst of all that, their hearts that have been hardened towards me will be humbled. And the Lord is going to use the church in a significant way. He's going to use these judgments in a significant way to humble the hearts of Jews because he wants them. He loves the Jews. Worship team, you can come on up. These are hard passages. But because it's hard, we don't want to you know, steer away from it. We want to recognize you can't be like more merciful than God. I mean, God wrote this stuff. This is God. And so we want to understand his severity and his mercy. We need to understand both. And a lot of this tonight was understanding his severity, but man, these passages go all the way back to the Pentateuch, all the way back to the original text, the, the, the books of Moses. And these are purposes that God has had in his heart throughout all these generations that we've still not yet seen a fulfillment. Israel is still not walking with God. But God's like, I'm going to get my Israel. Don't you wonder. I am going to get my people, my nation. They're my sons, uh, brothers, sisters. They are, they're Jews and my son's a Jew. I, I'm going to get my family. I'm going to. But because it hasn't happened yet, we're going to see some very intense events of which the end times revolve all around. Hopefully now we can see the end time events a little bit more connected to Israel is at the center. It's God coming for his nation. And he is going to see his nation of Israel. All right, well, let's pray. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources, please visit our website at tprdfw.com. Thank you.